hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. We're back. Everything old is new again, and four shows that might make you consider calling up an ex. Or not. This week, we'll be talking about The Warp Effect, The Director Who Buys Me Dinner, The End of the World with You, and Individual Circumstances. I love the energy. I just love it. It woke me right up. I'm happy with it. I was a Boy Scout. I know how to get hype on a moments notice i've had two extremely dirty martinis and i'm loose i'm ready i'm ready to do it this is our second chance romance episode in our spring series we've broken up the second chance romances into two variants there is the time fuckery variant, which is the warp effect and the director who buys me dinner. And then there's the head fuckery variant, which is the end of the world with you and individual circumstances. So what do you want to tackle first? Time fuckery or head fuckery? We should probably start with head fuckery. Before we jump into specifics on the shows, let's talk about second chance romance, because a lot of the folks who probably listen to us probably engage with BL separate from engaging with romance. So I think we should talk about what appeals to us who engage with romance beyond BL. What works and doesn't work with second chance romance for us? I am old. (laughs) And when you're old enough, you have in fact considered and sometimes gone beyond considering to actually do it, calling up an ex and figuring out if it's really not happening or if maybe, just maybe, there's a chance that you could renew what you had. When you get to a certain age, you start looking back at your life in different ways. You see the ways that you may have fucked up. You see the ways that people may have changed. People do change sometimes. You're taught all the time that people don't change, but people actually do change. Sometimes you're just looking back at your life and you're like, I was really in love there and we broke up. And I'm thinking now about, should we have broken up? Why did we break up? Was it dumb? Was I dumb? Sometimes you just need to go back and have those questions answered. So second chance romance for me is about giving yourself another opportunity at something you maybe shouldn't have ended. It's about growing up to me. That's what Second Chance Romance is about. And that's why it appeals to me. What about you, Ben? What is the appeal of Second Chance Romance to you? As we've covered on this podcast, 
I am a gay boy. Second chance romance for me is important for queer men because of the closet. I'm certain some of our viewers have never had to deal with being in the closet, and I really am thankful that you did not have to go through that. But for those of you who did live in the closet, you have people that you loved when the circumstances were not safe and not really conducive to pursuing that in a way that either of you felt safe about. And so for me, second chance romance appeals to the what if things had been a little bit easier? Like, I own my house now. I have very stable employment now. What if I ran into a few of the boys that I was desperately in love with when I was 15, 17, 24? What would I do? I like second chance romance because now that the obstacles that prevented us from reaching out aren't there, will we? And if so, why didn't we before? And if we can't, what changed? Or what did we misunderstand at that time? Like you said with the growing up component, you have to emotionally compromise. Sometimes people can be a bit rigid in their approaches to what they think romance and committed relationships should look like. It just is not that simple. Life is more complicated than just do we like each other. We wish it wasn't, but... I really like that for Second Chance Romance, we've faced the world apart. And we don't want to do that anymore. And I just really like the knowing of Second Chance Romance. I like that idea. When you're young, you have all these ideas about what love is supposed to be. Because maybe you've loved before, maybe you haven't. But you have all these ideas in your head when you're young about what life is supposed to be, about what love is supposed to be like. And then you get a few knocks and you come back around and you start to reprioritize things, see what feels important to you now and what doesn't feel like it's important anymore. You get some more understanding of what love is. And sometimes you look back like, yeah, God, well, I was wrong. Or maybe it's a question of having to forgive. Sometimes it's about forgiving yourself or somebody else for a mistake that you or they made. There's just so many different permutations of a second chance romance, so many different ways that it can go. And I feel like this set of shows is a good spread of the different kinds of second chance romance. So let's start with the head fuckery. The reason that this is called the head fuckery variant is because what's happening in these shows is literally that. It's head fuckery. The reasons that these people are coming back to relationships, the reason that they broke up was basically somebody fucked with somebody's head. <laughs> and that's why they were apart. And now they're coming back together for whatever reason. and trying to work through the bullshit that they might have put each other through. Let's start with individual circumstances. Ben, what's it about? 
Individual Circumstances is a second chance romance in which a young director who had some really, really strong success with his first project has fallen into a slump and people are no longer really interested in his work and they're not financially performing the way he'd like them to. He's been following this web novel for a while about someone writing some really intense angst and decides that he's going to reach out to that writer and convince him or her to sell the rights to him because he wants to adapt their story. After illegally acquiring the personal information of the writer, he arrives at their house to discover that it's his old friend from college who vanished without a trace on him like 10 years ago or so, and is not happy to see him at all. The director is incredibly determined and starts squatting on the writer's lawn, and through the sheer force of proximity and old feelings, these two eventually unpack some of what happened between them and decide to work together and eventually maybe rebuild their romance. Okay, so you say rebuild their romance, but the other thing about individual circumstances is that it's... It wasn't very good? Oh, got him! Individual Circumstances is a runaway story, which is probably maybe my least favorite kind of second chance romance. A runaway story is one where one person had feelings and rather than face them or try to see if maybe the feelings were reciprocated, they instead choose to run away from the person because they can't handle their feelings and they can't put their big girl panties on and talk about their feelings either. Individual Circumstances is a runaway romance because the writer ran away from the director when they were in college because he fell in love. And rather than try and see if it was reciprocated, he just assumed that it wasn't, and he disappeared from this man's life. And they were really close. They weren't in a romantic relationship, but they were incredibly close. It could have been romantic. There were clearly feelings there on both their sides. But the one guy, the writer, convinced himself that he was the only person who felt anything and basically hurt his own feelings and then ran away and hurt the other guy's feelings. Like I said, a runaway is probably my least favorite kind of second chance romance because it comes with a hefty amount of cowardice. I understand when you're young, these things loom so large, but maybe it's because I'm older now. I don't have time for that bullshit. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I am admittedly a fan of the runaway second chance romance. It's the gay thing. There is so much real existential fear about your own physical safety and emotional safety being a queer person in not ideal settings. When the characters believably feel that they are risking their entire world to be honest about their feelings and they feel rejected, I get it. I don't think they're right to run away from the person they love like that. I'm not vouching for it and saying this is good, but this is a story. And it's about like, what's the point? Like, why does this happen? 
some of us do this. Like you're going to say what you want to say when you think you can get away with it. And so I get it. I get the feeling of being in love with your best friend and risking changing that dynamic and anticipating all of the ways that they would be disgusted by it. You've said so many horrible things to yourself in your head. You're just looking for them to not be enthusiastic. And you're priming yourself for it. There's this whole thing I remember seeing once on either Tumblr or Twitter. Some woman talked about how she told her husband or boyfriend that when they're apart, he thinks that he hates her. And he said very simply, I wish you wouldn't imagine me that way because it feels really mean. And it's true. It's a very mean way to think about somebody who loves you. But the world has taught you that there's something wrong with you, that you will be reviled for the way you feel about people. It's really fucked up that queer kids growing up think that the way they love people is evil and wrong and hurtful. Like, that's not good. Whether the kids are going through this now. I'm really glad a lot of them aren't, but those of us who did are still here. And so I connect to characters like the writer who panic in that moment and run away. I don't think they're right, but I understand them. I take your point, and it is an extremely valid point about the fear of turning to somebody who has been by your side and saying to them, I feel differently about you now. How do you feel about me? And all the risk that that comes with, and especially from a queer perspective when the other person doesn't know that you're queer or you think that the other person doesn't know that you're queer. I can understand that kind of thing. But the relationship that we saw between the two characters in the past Okay, yes, I know that it's not exactly rational. The feeling is not exactly rational. But I feel like he knew. He did. The way that it unfolds in the present, it seems like he didn't know. But then I look at the scenes from the past, I'm like, dude, you knew. So he did know. But again, they were both awkward and uncertain about it. And they were both scared. They just handled it differently. Part of why this show ends up being very frustrating for me is one of the most useful plot tools that they had to their disposal was the sweatshirt from the past and the present. When the writer offered the sweatshirt in the past, it was clearly a boyfriend offering disguised as something else. And the director explicitly rejects the boyfriend jacket because it's a boyfriend jacket. And then he misplaces the boyfriend jacket by accidentally leaving it in a classroom. He desperately attempts to recover the boyfriend jacket, but the writer noticed that he left it behind and took it and is the one holding it. But because the director doesn't want to upset the writer or embarrass either of them, he doesn't tell him he's lost it and has been desperately looking for it. This becomes one of the wounds between them that's causing so much of this dismay. And I really wish that in the present, the jacket had come back out and they had unpacked or spent time unpacking why they misunderstood each other back then. 
the primary weakness of the show is that it drags out the reunion conflict for the bulk of its runtime and doesn't unpack why they ran from each other and the ramifications of that. They end up really delving into some really sad things. The writer kisses the director one night and then doesn't feel like this is his aha romance princess diaries heel popping moment and panics. When you're young and afraid of what coming out means, ostracization is what you're expecting. That's what your brain has prepared you for. And so you do it to yourself. That's the most insidious aspects about homophobia, which is why like people get really upset about the overt homophobia in BL. It's the internalized homophobia. I get the most intense about no one is doing more damage to gay kids than they're doing to themselves once that gets into them. And so I get it with these characters. This show disappoints me because it ends up feeling fairly forgettable. They couldn't commit to either major plot device they wanted to use, which is the leftovers from their past when they were in college, or the fact that the characters in the novel slash movie they're trying to make are stand-ins for each other. And I just don't feel that we arrived at something resonant. These leads were really attractive, but I feel like we waste our very limited runtime on just pointing cameras at the boys being cute. And also, unfortunately, this show has a dead fish kiss. And I'm sorry, Korea. Now that I know your boys know how to kiss, I will not be accepting it anymore. It just ended up really forgettable for me. After maybe the first two episodes, it started to feel draggy. And then by the end, when everything works itself out, I've been over it for a while at that point. And it just doesn't stay. It doesn't stick with There's me. also like some of the things that happen in the between time. The night he ran away from the director, the director couldn't run after him because he got a call from the hospital about his mom being suddenly hospitalized. And so he bailed on his best friend like the night his mom died and then didn't even know about the funeral, didn't talk to anybody. Cause I get it. Like he ostracized himself. He punished himself for all. But man, how do you, like, that's a huge thing. It felt like he also punished the director for not somehow divining and returning his feelings immediately by disappearing from his life when they were so close. When his mom's death anniversary comes up, the director asked the writer to go with him somewhere. And he's like, why are you taking me here? Why are you taking me here? What's this about? And then the director starts to talk about his mom dying. And this is where he scattered her ashes. That's when the writer finally realized that he hurt him. Even if it had not been a romantic thing, this was his closest friend. And he really hurt him by just disappearing. The writer finally understands that, that he was so tied up in how he was feeling. He abandoned his best friend when he needed him the most. The easiest indication that we feel kind of mild about this show, we're using their basic descriptors because I cannot remember their names. Couldn't tell you if you held a gun to my head at this point. Could not tell you what their names were. But that's okay because I'm over it. Final word on individual circumstances. 
my show notes just say meh. I gave it a seven. It was watchable and it wasn't bad, but it also wasn't very good. It wants to express the core ideas. I can feel that's what they're trying to reach, but they didn't know exactly how to get there. It isn't that the boys aren't willing to play that they're drawn to each other. It's just I think they got a little bit too wrapped up in the writer's righteousness. And I think they dragged that out too far. And the other side of the head fuckery variant, we have The End of the World with You. Ben, tell us what it's about. The End of the World with You is a Japanese BL in which a underpaid salaryman looks at the news and sees that a meteor five to ten times the size that killed the dinosaurs is headed to Earth in about 15 days. I don't remember at the start of the show. As the internet goes down in day two, he decides he's going to spend the remaining time he has at the library of his old college and just read some books he's wanted to. When he gets there, he runs into his old flame from college who asks him to bury a body. The body turns out to be a very much alive teenager. And the two of them go on a road trip to help bring this teenager home because the teenager did not die from the pills that the old flame gave him. This show ends up exploring a very complex and kind of toxic college romance as the two reunite in the face of existential dread and weirdly become gay dads to two teens. That synopsis is worthy of the show, which is just as weird as it sounds, but weird in a good way. A lot of folks dropped this show at episode two or three, and they were not wrong to do so. This show was very specific on the front end. At the time of recording, we're recording the day after the finale, and the finale is... It's fucking awesome. I'm sorry. It just is. There's a literal deus ex machina in the finale, which I love. I always love when shows are willing to be absurd and a little bit ridiculous, especially at the end. So I love that there's a literal deus ex machina. There's magical realism sprinkled throughout the show. It's not like a whole thread, but it's sprinkled throughout. It's delightful. So it's about Masmi who is the salaryman, and his ex-boyfriend, Ritsu. At first, Ritsu seems really dark-sided and toxic. And as you learn in the first couple of episodes about their college relationship and how it started and how it ended, you're at that point where you're like, well, fuck. Ritsu is just, he's horrible. He's an awful person. Why would I ever root for these two to get back together? And then by the end of the show, you're like, oh my God, yes, they got back <laughs> together. <laughs> Only Japan can do this to me in eight episodes. It's the laser focus they have. At the core, you have two boys who come from broken households, but in very different ways. Masumi is the victim of homophobic bullying 
by his own mother, who also just abused him for his entire childhood. He has always been made to feel like he's less and a burden. And then Ritsu is the byproduct of infidelity. It seems like his dad bailed on his first family to start one with Ritsu's mom. And he's always had to toe a certain line to not offend his older half-brother who seems to be kind of a screw-up. That has really messed with the way Ritsu seems to view romance. And also, he seems to be kind of a sex fiend. He wants to have the sex, and he will do so. But he's very callous about it. I don't know if I would call him a sex fiend. When we see Ritsu being so sexualized, he's a 20-year-old kid. What 20-year-old allosexual kid do you know who's not slutting it up if they can? I don't think you're wrong about that. He was clearly working through some of his own self-worth issues when they were together in college. And he was really mean to Masumi because he didn't know what else to do. And he regrets that for the next 10 plus years and doesn't know how to make that right. That's kind of why the impending apocalypse works really well here. When we think we're going to be around for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 80 years, it's easy to want to banish someone from your life. But staring down the end of the world, wouldn't you maybe want to spend that time trying to enjoy something with someone who maybe understands you a little bit? That's why I find myself being forgiving for what happens between them. Masumi doesn't just give in to Ritsu right away. All of his hurt is still there. But you also get to see what maybe worked for them. Ritsu's attitude of, I don't have to do what people want me to do, or what people think I'm supposed to do, ends up really benefiting Masumi when we get to this kind of messed up reveal about Masumi's mom. She calls Masumi, begging him to come help her. And Ritsu refuses to let Masumi spend his remaining days taking care of a mean woman in pain. That's probably one of the darkest things that happened in this show. And I was actually completely okay with it. I really loved that. Masumi's relationship with his mother is ugly. It's really toxic. It's built on guilt and shame. When his mom calls and begs him to come and be with her at the end of the world, he's considering it. His mother is cruel and their relationship is a cruel relationship. But Masumi still feels that filial guilt, that need to observe filial piety. And Ritsu just takes that off of his shoulders. He takes the responsibility for that guilt away from Masumi by telling him, I'm not taking you to see your mom. And furthermore, This kid that we're supposed to be taking home, I'm not taking him anywhere unless you're coming with me. So are you going to go and spend your last days with your mom or are you going to help me take this kid home? And he takes the burden of guilt, the filial piety part of it, and also Masumi's internalized shame and guilt that surrounds his relationship with his mother. He just takes all of that away from him. And it's not the first time that he does it. 
in that same episode where that happens, you get a flashback to their college years. Everybody's going home for Christmas. Masumi's feeling that guilt and shame again that, you know, maybe he should go home to his mom. And Ritsu takes it completely out of his hands and basically plans for them to spend the holiday together. Masumi doesn't even have room to say, well, I have to go home. He just takes it out of Masumi's hands. So it's not the first time that he's done that for him. It seems cruel in the show when you see it happen. But when Ritsu turns to Masumi and said, it's my fault. I'm the reason that you're not going to see her. You can blame me. That's when I was like, okay, I understand what the show is doing. I think what I love so much about that final sequence, I think it's on episode three on the beach, is Masumi's not dumb. He knows what Ritsu's doing for him. And he says very quietly, I didn't want to go before he breaks down. That really works so much. I have some other thoughts about Masumi and Ritsu, but before we get into that, let's talk about Yuma, the teenager they pick up. The magical boy who saves the world and maybe was the reason it almost ended in the first place. Yuma is a tease. It's never quite clear whether Yuma is actually magical or whether it's just all coincidence and the end of the show sort of makes fun of that as well in using Yuma as the deus ex machina, why the world doesn't end. He pops up in the literal last seconds of the show, basically as a kind of a god and blows the meteor away from the earth. It's really, it's silly and so much fun. So ridiculous, it's perfect. Let me describe uh, Yuma's role in the story. Trigger warnings for suicide for the rest of the discussion about the end of the world with you. Yuma is a teenage boy who is going through two big forms of grief. He had an intense love for a young girl who rejected him, and his favorite idol, we learn later, succumbed to suicidal thoughts. He is despondent and distraught, and he does not want to exist anymore. He meets the worst person he could probably run into in that moment which is Ritsu, whose life is falling apart. We know now with context that Ritsu doesn't ever think he's going to reconcile with Masumi. He feels like he let down a good friend of him, which we learn is the idol that Yuma loved. And the world's going to end anyway. But Yuma doesn't die, and he also ran into Masumi. And now they're trying to help Yuma. And along the way on their little gay road trip, they end up running into the younger sibling of this idol who Yuma starts to fall for. The sibling is experiencing gender. They said that they're still a man, but they're presenting female and they want Yuma to continue to think of them as female. This show ends up becoming this question about how to deal with romantic grief when you're young. So many of us, when we experience our first huge losses, We're not trained how to cope with that. And those feelings of worthlessness and the pain are extremely intense. You get that with Masumi never really getting over Ritsu. Like in a lot of ways, he's walking through the world a bit dead. He doesn't really have any aspirations for himself. He's working a dead-end job. He basically failed out of school because of how upset he was about Ritsu. There's not many prospects for him. 
Ritsu's life is falling apart. He doesn't really want to do anything. Madoka, the idol who took her own life, she was queer and in love with one of the other female idols in her group and couldn't handle her choosing to love a man instead of her. She succumbs to her feelings, and Yuma wanted to succumb to his feelings. And so much of this show is about these four characters staring into the abyss and then stepping back from it and saying, no, I want to live. I'm still deeply affected, I believe, by it's the end of episode six, where they're shouting to the heavens for a miracle to happen, for the world not to end. I think there's just something so powerful about a bunch of queer kids begging for life to be better because they want to live. I just really love this show. Like you're talking about it now and I have a smile on my face. I realize as much as the show seems dark, I mean, it deals with the literal end of the world. It's deeply existential. There's all this deep, dark shit in it. And yet the thing that I walk away from the show with is so much hope. Right? I think that's what's so special. The world is a mess and Masumi and Ritsu don't have a lot of prospects, but they want to live together. They want to make something of themselves together. When we talk about second chance romance, I like how the second chance for them was the chance to move past and heal from the mess of their past relationship and connect to something better. Like while taking care of Yuma, they found something about their teamwork in that. And it was so endearing to watch. It was beautiful, especially now the world has just gone through this massive existential event. Well, I'm saying gone through, but it's still going through this massive existential event with the pandemic. There's been not an absence of hope, but a dearth of it. And to just watch this show, I felt so light when I finished watching it. I felt happy. I felt like there's hope for us yet. I felt like you can stare down the end of the world and come out the other side of it. It really resonated in a way that I don't think it would have resonated before the pandemic. I enjoyed it a great deal. And yeah, it's a BL, but to me, Ritsu and Masumi is only a part of the whole thing. The biggest part, granted, but it wasn't just that they found each other again and they worked through their stuff and they decided to be together. But that moment, for example, in the last episode of Meguru, who is Madoka's sibling, giving Yuma their contact information and saying, look, if we don't die, call me. I just really love that in a show about so many characters staring down whether or not they still want to live, despite how much they were unsure about it and how much it hurt sometimes. They said, yes, I do want to live. Like when Masumi falls off that cliff and I'm like, oh boy, is my, is my boy going to die right now? Like nobody wanted him to die. And that's, that's the point. In the scariest of moments, you, you want people to choose to live. You want people to stick around. And I really like 
that this show is begging you to stick around. Also, for funsies, this is the hottest show we have ever watched. These boys fucked in this show. My goodness. I don't know about the hottest ever, but it was up there. It was definitely up there. Like, Ritsu and Masumi, in college, they were hot stuff. When they got back together, they were hot stuff. We saw Ritsu's hip in that last scene. Somebody mentioned, and I had to go back and look at it, and it's true, that when Ritsu and Masumi are banging it out anytime, Ritsu is focused, laser focused on Masumi, making sure that Masumi is comfortable, making sure that he's enjoying himself, making sure that he is into it, whatever they're doing. He is so intensely focused on Masumi's pleasure. I'm still not over it. We have this whole thing, like the sexier a show is in Japan, the more tragic it's going to be. So like huge flags went up for a lot of us in the first couple of episodes. We were surprised by how much sex that they showed these boys having in the first couple of episodes. And I was like, this is not going to go well at all. And that's what's so fun about the Deus Ex Machina ending of just, nah, their apocalypse is over. Gay love wins. We don't die. While they're banging it out, Yuma is blowing away the meteor. <laughs> you can't get over that visual. It's so good. It's so lo-fi. It's such a low-cue ending. It is the cheapest looking CGI that you've ever seen. It's delightful. It was so delightful. Tamimoto Socio. He's really good. I liked him. He plays Yuma's precociousness and also like really annoying teen boy stuff in a way that was eminently charming. I just loved his fashion, the way that they dressed <laughs> the character. It was perfectly embarrassing teenage boy. I think this was a 10, then. It was a 9, because I almost dropped it. And I think you have to work for the point a bit. I'm giving it a 10. You can give it a 9, it averages out to a 9.5. I guess the reason why I'm not giving it a 10 is a 10 for me is something that I'm like, everybody should watch this. And I don't think everybody should watch this because of how difficult some of the the topics are. One of the downsides of the way Japan handles some of their difficult topics so matter-of-factly is I don't always know that the show is being as gentle as it should be about some of these things. And so I can't just say everybody should watch this. I think it's really good, which is why I put it at the nine. But I feel like you have to give them a pamphlet before they go in. Fair enough. Now we're going to move on to the time fuckery variant. And the time fuckery variant is interesting because it's got a little bit of sci-fi fantasy magical realism going on so the second chances in these second chance romances work a little differently than they would otherwise but still 
sometimes entertaining, varying results. So let's start with The Director Who Buys Me Dinner. Ben, tell us what it's about. The Director Who Buys Me Dinner is about this young man who is starting his first job at a company he's excited to work with because it's an entertainment company and his favorite idol is there. He expected to be on the team that was going to work closely with the idol and help plan his events, but instead ends up being assigned to like the internal staff team and ends up working as a secretary to the boss. We learn very early on that the boss believes he is the reincarnation of someone he loved 300 years ago. And the boss has been alive for 300 years, waiting for him to pop back up. And so he's requiring our new employee to attend all of these dinners with him so they can get close. The show gets a bit lost in its own storytelling after this because the idol is maybe involved in the events that went down 300 years ago. And things get a little bit fuzzy with the show in a way that just ends up being a hot mess for me. Before we get deeper into this, Nini has shied at me for being overly kind to some of these shows in my ratings for them. I gave this show a five. I genuinely do not recommend this show. We're going to spend some time unpacking this. This right, show pissed me it. off. Like, actively <laughs> pissed me off. <laughs> It actively pissed me off because Korea does this kind of show really, really well in K-drama. This kind of through the centuries kind of second chance romance, reincarnation type shit. It does this type of show in K-drama really, really well. And I feel like this show just didn't put in the necessary effort in terms of the story, in terms of the pacing, in terms of the mechanics of everything, the story in the past, the story in the present. I feel like everything was just hand-waved and wishy-washy. Tell us how you really feel, Nini. What was the reason? What was the reason? It's in the blurb here. We have to date. If we don't, we die. like i don't even understand i don't understand the mythology it's kind of cool that god wants the gays to be together in this show but like there's this whole moment where soldung beck that's the new employee gets like possessed by some other force at some point which was super hot but also very confusing And then, like, on top of everything else, I'm already pissed off. And then you end in the middle of the story or what feels like the middle of the story. It doesn't curl all the way over for me. I feel like they had a lot of ideas and they didn't try to match their ideas with their production capability. Like everything from Korea, it looks amazing. Korean shows always look good. The historical stuff, it looks great. It sounds good. The production quality is always good coming out of Korea. But the story is a mess. It's such a mess. And because the story is a mess, the acting doesn't land for me. So, like, this is a good example of a show wanting more than its budget allowed. Like, they really love the 
the source material that this is based on. And I can see why. I think there are some really good ideas at the core of it. But I just don't think they had enough time to unpack all of them. And it really suffers across the board for it. It's really frustrating watching the show and just not understanding the rules for anything, being told that things are important, and then seeing a bunch of characters get weirdly jealous of each other and just feel like we're not in on what's going on. It may be a little bit about money, but it's not about time. It's not about anything like that. It is literally about this is what we have. Let's make a fucking fantastic story out of this. And with the director who buys me dinner, the problem is that they paid no attention to what they were able to do. And so they let down everything that they actually did. I'm gonna just say it out loud. Hated it. Hated it. Girl kaboom. (laughs) How did they even get to the point where the guy and the director got into a relationship? This particular conceit doesn't always work for me because one of them can't remember the events the other is describing and kind of holding over them. I don't think the show does a great job with it. Let's move on to talk about something that we really liked. The warp effect. This is not technically a BL. But it is the queerest thing we've watched all year so far. That's what I'm saying. So, Ben, what is the warp effect about? The warp effect is about Alex, played by New Titipoon, who is a student at a Catholic high school in Thailand. And the promise he made to his mother and Jesus that he will not have sex before marriage or before he's ready. But he is a teenage boy who really wants to have the sex. At a house party held near the end of their time in high school, he gets very drunk and a bunch of things happen at this party. And then he is suddenly teleported 10 years into the future where he is a successful gynecologist and apparently very good at sex, but all of his relationships are a mess. He has to reconnect with all of his old high school friends, try to fix all of their problems, and then hopefully he can go back and enjoy life again. At the very least, hopefully he'll be able to come again because one of the problems in the present is he cannot orgasm. So he needs to fix these problems so he can enjoy sex again. Or at all, since the 17, 18-year-old version of him does not remember having sex. That's the broad overview. We'll get into a lot of specifics because this was a very packed show. But that's the primary conceit. This show sounds dumb, but it is not dumb. It is a little dumb, but it is amazing. I don't know. Is it dumb? I feel like it's not dumb. This is a Jojo teacher corn joint. So it's not it dumb. Is. That's 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 a great that's a great describer. This is very much a JoJo show. This is so JoJo. It has all the JoJo hallmarks. It's got a big cast. It's got a lot of storylines, a lot of plates spinning in the air. They all manage to keep spinning throughout the whole thing. It's very queer. It's surprising coming from GMMTV because it is 
a queer kinky sex comedy. And that is not really GMMTV's brand. As much BL as they do, they don't do kink. They don't really do a lot of queerness. Sex, the most you usually get out of GMMTV is a a very tasteful fade to black. So the sex romp nature of this and the fact that GMMTV let JoJo make this and put it on air because it didn't just go on YouTube. It was on television in Thailand. (laughs) The show is so fun. It's funny. It's heartwarming. It's heartbreaking. There's a lot of great ensemble work in here. The way that the ensemble sort of breaks off into pairs and groups as well is also pretty fantastic. The central character is Alex, and Alex is played by Nui, who is not my favorite. I don't hate him in this, but I do like everybody (laughs) else more than him in this. I call him the central character because the whole story sort of revolves around him. But there's only really one storyline in which he's crucial and critical. And that is his storyline with Fa Youngwari, who plays Jean. I think before we get into the details of that, I'm going to completely detail all of the dynamics in play in this show as best I can. So that the people who maybe haven't can understand what's going on. I wish you luck. In the past, in high school, Alex has two best friends. C.U. played by Sing Harrod and Nim played by Jan Ploy Shampoo, two of my faves. They are a bunch of nerds and Nim is very much a lesbian whose dad is a boxer who eventually gives his dojo to her. Alex is a people-pleasing Catholic boy who has a very difficult time saying no to people properly, and establishing healthy boundaries with people. He has a really effective budding friendship and romance with Jean through their shared participation in the photography club. Jean is most notable on campus for being the feminist. We all know that girl who we had growing up. At this party, we're introduced to some of the other dynamics. First, we have Army and Joe, who are jocks who like to pick on Alex. We learn that they are secretly hooking up in the background. You have Kat, played by Gigi Shannon Fat, who is just the hottest girl, who doesn't want to settle with anyone. She wants to live her life the way she wants to live it and does not need to be tied down by anybody. You have Liu, played by Cleese, another of my faves, who ends up in a secret relationship with C.U. Meanwhile, you've got Molly, who's played by Sylvie, who is in a relationship with Nim, and they're having really great lesbian interactions, but Molly is maybe coming to some greater understanding of their gender, and things get a little complicated for them. Also, the hosts of this party are Jedi, played by our favorite sixth man on this podcast, Mark Pocking, who is absolutely devoted to his girlfriend, Rose, played by Bess Jira. Finally, there is 
Ice, played by Puin, who is Alex's little brother, who in the future is in a relationship with a girl in his band, and they get to do an unwanted pregnancy plotline that I think plays out really well. That's the whole cast and their primary relationships in the past. Primary difficulties they deal with with these pictures we have is C.U. is dealing with issues related to his kinks. Nim is dealing with issues related to her relationships and how pregnancy features into Army and Joe are dealing with the way homophobia and the way they responded to it broke their relationship in the past and how they're trying to manage that in the future. Ice and Kim are managing an unwanted pregnancy. Molly is dealing with the expectations for a certain type of woman visually for the role of a female lead in an action story, while also dealing with the way they express their queerness. Jedi and Rose are dealing with the pressures on some modern couples to open their relationship and then deal with the STD conflicts that can arise. And then we learn for the core couple with Alex and Jean about how, unfortunately, certain wrongs you commit against another person, particularly when they come to sex, cannot be fixed with apologies. And I think I did it. I feel like that's very comprehensive. Just to note, it's Sizzy, not Cleasy. She's Sizzy from Sizzy. Oh, Sizzy! Damn it! (laughs) It's so hard to talk about the warp effect because there's so much happening. I feel like when you watch it, it all makes sense. The whole story dovetails surprisingly well. Like, it's surprisingly tight for such a large ensemble telling such diverse parts of the story i do like that about it it's the opposite of entropy where everything just starts out chaotic and then it just starts to spiral together and then it comes down to a single point i think that that's done really well i feel like this was jojo at his absolute best i think it helps that he had another director working with him i think nanu brings a lot to the table I described a lot of plot points happening. And like, if you follow me and you go back through my straight thoughts for the warp effect, every time I have to recap what happened in the last episode, I'm like, yeah, all of that happened in the last episode. What I think stands out for me is as we talk about in this podcast, I watch probably too much stuff. I never forgot what was going on in the warp effect from week to week while a season of bangers was airing. This show remained completely legible and present in my memory as I was also watching My School President Never Let Me Go, the entirety of the Midnight series. It's a Kushikari. It was a packed season of really good shows, and this held its own. I'm just going to say it now. Like we gave, I gave Moonlight Chicken and My School President and It's a Kushikari 10s. I also gave a 10 to this show. This show manages to be sex positive and do really great teachable moments about sexual health and relationship health without feeling like a 90s after school special about it all. 
because everything is intrinsically linked to what the characters need to hear and what they want to experience. And it's broad. It's not just about abortion or kink or sexual assault or queerness or internalized homophobia or pregnancy. It ends up being so much about what intimacy means for the human experience and how we make such a mess of it. And it hopes that you can learn from some of these mistakes you hear about and seeing other people make so you can avoid them themselves. Because in the end, Alex does go back and he does help everybody avoid the problems that stemmed from maybe that one fateful night at the party. Let's talk about standout dynamics that we really enjoyed. You know who I ended up really loving as a result of this show? Besides Fa. I mean, Fa can do no wrong for me at this point. It was Fluke Pusset. He was so compelling in this. Like He ends up playing out different competing dynamics with people, depending on whether it's the past or the present, in a way that also keeps his characterization consistent, despite the circumstances that have shifted around his character. Fluke gives one of the best performances between the past and the present in this show because his character has shifted so much because he was closeted in the past, but he's out in the present. I just really liked what he did here with Army and Joe. I'm going to talk about the gay boys because I'm the gay boy. But like I said earlier in this podcast, like gay people are going to do the most harm to themselves. In the past, he decides to initiate an encounter at school with Joe. They get caught and then he outs Joe and accuses Joe of trying to come on to him in the shower. So Joe has to bear the social stigma of being the gay pervert at the end of high school. This cripples Joe and sends him deep into the closet, which is so sad because we learned that he's the one who wanted them to come out. And he ends up sticking with sports as he gets older and his life is a little bit difficult because he can't be out in his role as a high school boys soccer coach. Meanwhile, Army has gone on to be Mr. Queer Man of the Nightlife with all of his various partners, and he's demanding that Joe not be closeted when he's the one who inflicted this upon him. That's an incredibly difficult story to convey, and I think Fluke and Thor do a great job with it. Also, Joe doesn't enjoy penetrative sex. And I really like Jojo giving that particular character trait to Joe. There are going to be so many people who want to call Joe aside because of his internalized homophobia. And you might not be wrong, but I think it's especially important in BL adjacent media to own that not every gay man wants to peg or get pegged. You and I have talked a lot about how limited gay male sex feels in BL world. And this kind of opens things up because it's actively discussed that this is not the be all and end all of gay male sex. It's not even most of it. There's so much other stuff. And once ARMY understands where Joe is coming from and wants to find all these other ways that they can still be intimate physically, you start to see a whole scope of things that can be done. And it just makes me even more annoyed 
by the fact that so much of BL focuses so heavily on penetrative sex as the be all and end all of a relationship between two men. I really liked that it was the encouragement of the straight ally who is so comfortable with gay people that helps them get past this hump. You like that? I found that was weird. I liked it because when you're inside of it, you can get a little narrow-minded. Like your vision can get too tight about what you're dealing with. And you need somebody outside of it to offer some perspective. For me, it was just kind of strange that the straight boy is explaining to the gay boy how to fondle his boyfriend. It doesn't bother me because porn really did a number on all of us. And that has really affected gay men's relationship with sex and each other. It is just as bad as BL. The goal of sex is for one person to mount the other. Maybe you'll switch, but everything else is treated as foreplay. And foreplay is not treated as like the goal. And you have to unlearn that. The big thing we understand from Army and Joe is that no one helped guide them because of the closet. Army may be out and proud now, but he's also a mess. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's a doctor who focuses on erectile dysfunction and stuff. So maybe he should know a little bit more than that. But you can tell, like, it's probably the fact that he thinks he knows, which is his big blind spot. I can sort of see that and see how getting an outside, outside perspective would sort of help in that regard. I also get the sense that Alex is his only friend. Let's talk about another queer relationship in this show. Let's talk about Jedi and Rose. Romance is not dead because Jedi and Rose exist. It really isn't. (laughs) I loved Mark and Best so much together in this. It was absolutely incredible to watch. You could tell that Best got a little nervous sometimes with some of the scenes that she had to be in, and Mark supports her so well. I loved Jedi and Rose in this. I love their wedding. Their wedding was so perfect. You heard it here on the podcast. Nini loved the wedding. I did. I loved their wedding. Romance isn't dead yet. I loved the proposal. I loved everything that came before that. The fact that they decided to open up their relationship and then neither of them had sex with anybody else. But both of them thought they were. I liked that they were like, I didn't want to. I just wanted to be back with you. I'm like, you two are so pathetic. I love you both so much. How do you open your relationship and then you think that the other person is having sex with other people when nobody's having sex with anybody else and you're only having sex with each other, but you believe that you're in an open relationship? Those two are so dumb and I love them. I love them so much. And I love that it took an STD scare from something they probably got in high school because that's when they stopped sleeping with other people. I love that it took that for Mm -hmm. them to realize that they don't want to sleep with other people. I actually did not know that about, about HPV. Yeah, it can lay dormant for a really long time, which is why it's so scary and why they encourage everybody, people, go and get your HPV vaccine if you haven't gotten it already. But yeah, I dissolve when I think about those two. They were so good together. 
Also, I will never get over the elevator scene from the final episode. The whole show is insane. It's full of insane moments like that. Like Joe and Army in the locker room when Jean and Alex at the end do have sex. They're playing Joy to the World, which I will never get over. The whole show is wild. There's no other way to describe it. The whole show is wild, but it's delightful. Surprisingly deep. Jung is actually really enjoyable in this, too. I did like Jung, but I feel like towards the end, his whole storyline got a little hand-waved. But I guess that's fine. They didn't know yeah, what to they do didn't really it, know what okay. to do with it. They just kind of stuck him with Cat at the end. The spares. I want to talk about Cat a little bit. The whole story, you are basically told without being told that Cat is Arrow. She's not ace. She likes sex. She really likes sex. Not at all. She does she like loves sex. It. Apparently, only with boys, though. She no 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 not only boy she said she does have a little bit of interest in women, but then she was like never mind Jean because Jean's like I'm by let's do this right now and I was like hell yeah y'all been teasing this for weeks. This is why I need a Gigi and Fagio, like a hot one too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear here. We're not just going to make little cute faces and touch hands in this, and then one of them's going to dye their hair blue. No. No. I need them to bang it out. I need whatever characters they are playing to bang it out, and I need to see it. Jojo, if you listen to this, after you're done with Only Friends, your next task has been assigned. So Cat is Arrow. That's what the story is telling us about her. She's not asexual, but she's aromantic. She's not interested in romantic relationships. She wants to have sex, have a good time, move on. And what I didn't like about the end of the story, this is probably the only thing I didn't like about the end of the story, is that she gets together with Jung's character, who is Tony. Tony had a crush on Jean. It didn't work out for multiple reasons, which we'll get to. And he sort of moves on to Cat, who had made a move on him in a bar, tried to pick him up once. But he seems to be trying to push a romantic relationship toward her. And she seems to be responding to it. And I was like, no, I don't want that. If Cat is Arrow, let her be Arrow. I think the two can exist. I think she can be in an aromantic sexual partnership with a man. I don't think there's anything wrong with Kat having a invested relationship with someone who does care about her, who understands and respects what she's not going to be able to give him. He can be also honest that if she changes her mind, he is still open to it. To me, that feels unbalanced, and I didn't, I don't like that. It is but i think that's the problem with any sort of ace romance of any sort with anyone is you are going to always have an inherently imbalanced relationship i just wanted cat to continue being a total shock i get that it does feel like she may be dimmed a little bit in that way but i'm not necessarily bothered by it i feel like there's so little representation of ace back And I can believe that 
Kat has people in her life that she loves, even men in her life that she loves, but it doesn't have to be in a romantic way. I just don't think it's inherently romantic because we see from the beginning that she did want a stable, reliable fuck buddy. The reason she chose Alex is he's the safest boy she knows. Yes, but also that Alex wasn't interested in getting into a romantic relationship with her, which was, I think, one of the things that she gravitated towards about him. Not just the fact that he was safe, but also the fact that he was safe, if you understand what I mean. That he wouldn't ever try to push her into something that she wasn't interested in being into. I just don't think Jung's character, Tony, is pushing her either. We see that he has complete regard for Kat and Jean, so I don't feel the angst about it. He's honest the whole time. He's not like Captain who lied and then hurt her. That is true. They're definitely different. It's still a 10 that just is like a niggle. It bothered me just a teensy-weensy bit. Let's talk about the women. Let's talk about the ladies and the ladies. So let's talk about Nim and Molly. I really liked them so much. Oh my God. Nim is such a disaster lesbian. I love her so much. She is the best friend I had when I was like, 2021 just an absolute mess the fight that she had with molly after the party in the original timeline where molly kisses alex because she wanted to know what it would be like to kiss a dude and how she would feel about it i have lesbian friends and they have that fight all the time there's always this worry that you are going to fall in love with a straight girl who will then leave you for a dude when she gets over the whole lesbian thing. It's like a big worry with my lesbian friends. They're just like, so is she a lesbian or is she a tourist? Like that's something that they say all the time. Gay until graduation. Yeah. So I feel like I understand Nim's panic. Molly kisses Alex, first of all. So that's the first thing. And then Molly is saying, well, I don't know what I feel my gender is. In the end, Molly does turn out to be non-binary. But in this exploration phase that they're in, in high school, they're telling Nim, I love you, but in terms of who I am, I don't know who I am yet. I'm still figuring that out. And they tell Nim, can you love me while I figure that out? And Nim basically says no. And then Nim gets involved with Bew. I think it's important that we acknowledge that lesbians are just as likely as straight women to bring an ill-advised baby into this world in the hopes that they'll fix their relationship. The whole story around Nim and Bew is so fascinating to me. The whole immigration part of the story and that whole green card lottery and the whole grabbing the chance to immigrate to the U.S. thing. I know so many people who went through this. I am from a small developing country. And so I know so many people who went through this. They got into a relationship or they were in a relationship and things were 
pretty serious. And then they got the chance to leave and they just took off like a shot, no matter what else was going on. And they left sort of everybody behind them in the lurch. Like I've seen this story way too many times. So watching it unfold in a Thai drama was just kind of like, oh my God, they're just like us. I feel like it's a a storyline that maybe some Americans wouldn't get because they don't have that immigrant background or that background of coming from outside of the U.S. and the chance that some people see that if you win the green card lottery, they call it a lottery for a reason. I really love that everyone's queer in specific ways in this. Yeah, because let's see, Rose is trans, Molly is non-binary, Nim is a lesbian, Army and Joe are gay men, CU and Liu are kink. I don't know if kink qualifies as queer. They don't qualify as queer, but they've been in the struggle with us since the beginning, so they get a seat at the table. And then Jean is bisexual. Kat is aspec because she's not asexual, she's aromantic. And then Jedi has been in a committed queer relationship the whole time. Like, I don't know what we call him. Like, I guess he's straight TM, but he's in a committed queer relationship and runs a gay bar. The only straight character in the whole thing is Alex. And maybe Tony. And probably Ice. I keep forgetting that Ice and Kim are in this. And the thing is that their storyline ends up so central to understanding what's happening in the whole show. The whole thing between Gene and Alex, which is the center of the show, their storyline ties directly into that. But I keep forgetting that they're in there. The reveal we get is at the party, while drunk, Alex forgets to put a condom on during his encounter with Gene. And then because he is more than a little faded. He's wasted. He doesn't recognize that she wants him to stop. And this traumatizes gene they were both drunk alex was drunker and he forgot to put the condom on and he got her pregnant and she had an abortion alone and that seems to be directly related to her problems in the present i like that they stress that there's no making that right like it doesn't matter if gene still feels things for alex he can't apologize that away It's an interesting choice in a show that's very much built upon all of these characters getting second chances with each other now that Alex has decided to give a shit about them properly. That the show goes very plainly, you can't fix that. Just because you've grown now, just because you recognize what you did now, it doesn't change what has happened. Gene doesn't owe it to Alex to make him feel better about what he did to her. I feel like one of the key things about the show is that there's a lot you can fix, but there are some things you just can't. It's such a fascinating choice to use Nui for this. His characters always have such an incredible people-pleasing energy about them. Like, it's very important to show that Alex is a nice guy, and he did one of the worst things you can do to a person. Because he was doing nice guy shit. He was a nice guy and didn't say no to getting too drunk. He was a nice guy and just agreeing to everything with everyone. And then 
He got way too drunk to pay attention to Jean and hurt her in the worst way. And the fact that he was a nice guy and he didn't mean to do it doesn't absolve him. The warp effect, I think that it's an incredibly solid show. It got out what it wanted to say in an incredibly effective way, both in terms of the storytelling and in terms of the emotions that it wanted to raise in the audience, I think. While being genuinely funny. This show's comedy hits so consistently. You know what I like about it the most? I said this in the Never Let Me Go episode, that Jojo is not a romance director, but he's very romantic. This show is very sweet and romantic at its core. In the end, they hand wave away everything that's happened, but not in an annoying way. Basically, they erase all the shit that happened between high school and the present by going back to the past and having Alex redo the night of the party and not make the mistakes that he made. It was really great. If you skipped this show because it seemed too obnoxious, you owe it to yourself to give this show a second chance. This show was genuinely delightful. And if you've been in BL for a while, particularly with GMMTV, you should see some of these cast members clearly have just the absolute ball of a time on this show. You could tell that this cast was having so much fun all the time. Singh Herit got to do puppy play on camera. And he clearly had such a good time doing it. He was so good at it. It was sweet. It was romantic. I also want to applaud the people of Tumblr for being very respectful about Sissy's feet. I have not seen anything untoward on my dashboard, and I'm really proud of all of you. (laughs) And I think that's where we're going to leave it, folks. (laughs) That is going to wrap up our second chance romance episode for spring 2023. We out. Say bye to the people, Ben. Peace.